Welcome to Whole Lot of Comedy and What It Takes, a series featuring people who have turned their dreams into reality. Today we have Simon Hancock and what it takes to understand Flanders and Swan. Now, Simon will play piano and speak of his love of Flanders and Swan. Now, Simon, now, who were they and why are they so popular? They were a comedy duo who um, found a, a sort of unique blend of what essentially uh, stand up, uh, though they were seated because Flanders was in a wheelchair and Swan sat at the piano. Um, and they did mostly comic songs, although sometimes they were a bit more serious. Uh, they were unique, but um, I suppose if you're looking for an equivalent more recently, it'd be someone like Victoria Wood or Richard Stilgo. Um, Michael Flanders was a, an actor originally and a broadcaster, a great raconteur. He could tell great stories. And Donald Swan was a light music pianist and composer, very talented, had an amazing uh, gift for piano playing. They first came to public prominence in 1957, and their act lasted maybe 10 or 12 years, till the late 60s. Are they highly gifted characters who were, from the very start, um, sort of, they had it in them, they were gifted, let's just say, or did they work hard at it? Uh, I think they were, yes, very much gifted, although I wouldn't think either of them set out to do what they did. Yeah. Um, and their success was very much down to their partnership. Uh, and they, they actually went to school together, uh, Westminster School. Uh, then after, they did some sort of school shows. Um, then after that they went their separate ways because the war came along. And Michael Flanders served in the Navy, his ship was torpedoed, uh, and Don Swan was an ambulance driver, he was a pacifist uh, in Greece. Um, and Flanders got polio during the war, uh, which is why he ended up in a wheelchair. He spent six months in an iron lung, if you can imagine that. Incredibly, <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. Um, and I think they say he was quite a sort of, um, uh, almost bordering on the uh, arrogant young man, but after he uh, came out, survived his illness, uh, he was more, um, you know, what's not good, uh, a bit more easygoing, I should we say. Um, and it, what they did together was a um, sort of review style of show, uh, the two of them on the stage, very few props, they just sat on the stage together, and Flanders, Michael Flanders did introductions to the songs, they then both sang. And Flanders did spoken monologues as well, and Swan sang rather quirky songs in foreign languages. Um, and I don't think they ever set out to do what they did. Um, it, they sort of fell into it after the war. They, um, they were at Oxford together, and they, and they started doing songs for uh, shows, for reviews, and gradually began to make a bit of a name. Uh, and they went to uh, Dartington in Devon. Uh, there was a summer school there, uh, still is, I think. And um, they went there quite regularly, got to know people, and they used to do shows there. And the introductions to the songs became as popular as the songs themselves, and everyone loved them. So they thought, well, let's try it in a theatre. So they booked a theatre 
in Notting Hill one New Year's Eve in 1956, uh, and they did their show, and it got rave reviews. Their friends all loved it, told all their friends, and uh, so they were offered um, a spell at, in the West End Theatre, and the rest just took off from there. As people heard about it, uh, they just came in their droves, and then there were two records made, uh, about three, uh, three full-length LPs, um, produced by George Martin, of Beatles fame, um, and that's how the, the vast majority of people heard them is through the records, although they did lots of live shows, both in this country and in the States and in Australia. Uh, so they had a huge following in, in quite a short time. So they actually did, let's say, from Ox at Oxford, they would have actually used, their, the duo would have used together um, to earn money, I presume, or to, to keep them going. Would they have gone out and done the hard yards in the pubs and let's say, the clubs at the time to play together to get an audience? No. Or did they just work together and refine their skills? It wasn't quite as um, intentional as that, I don't think, to begin with. I think they just did it for fun, just wrote songs together, hoping that someone would take them up. They, there's a, quite a famous singer at the time called Ian Wallace, who sang quite a lot of their things. They were in a review by uh, someone called Laurier Lister, who ran uh, reviews in London, which were... were reasonably popular um, and they just gradually built up a following through I think they almost like um, they were playing at it to begin with having fun um, so I don't think they ever set out to do the hard graft of playing clubs and that sort of thing mm -hmm. um, because of who they knew uh, they had a bit of I think they had a bit of a head start in some ways, partly because they were Oxford educated. Mm -hmm. um, so they probably had contacts and knew people who knew people, yeah, yeah. Uh, which probably helped them get started, but it was their sheer talent <coughs> that um, you know, got them where they were. Yeah. And, and the, the talent between the two of them, as you said, it would have been initially from school. Did they actually come from musical backgrounds? Yes. Uh, yeah, Florence had a mother, I think, who was a violinist father who I think was in the theatre and uh, yeah, very much a performing background. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think Swan's family was also musical, quite um, cosmopolitan background that Swan had. Um, but he, yeah, he, he's like one of those people who could just sit down and do it. You know, it, it all sounds so effortless what he does. Mm -hmm. uh, I've spent years trying to play like that and I can't get near it. Uh, it is. Yeah, it, it was an amazing combination of, of two uh, extraordinary talents, I think, which just happened to, to come together at the right time. Um, and they, I think they just enjoyed working together, working, writing songs. They'd sort of meet up and just talk about stuff in the mornings and then write a song and then play it to Michael Flans's mother and she'd say, oh, this is good, this is good. <laughs> um, and so they just built up a repertoire which they then used in their shows. Did they, were they, and then, you know, before we get down to the actual music itself and the show, did they, were they an eclectic mix, sort of two diverse minds, or did they think together as one? I think they were quite different people. I think Swan, Donald Swan, was fairly shy, quite reticent, whereas Michael Flanders was very outgoing. The, the record sleeves, uh, Falstaff playing duets with Hamlet, so Falstaff a very sort of jovial character, 
uh, very outgoing, um, and that was Flanders. And, and that swan much more almost in the background. Um, uh, so, that, yeah, it's sort of uh, complementary skills, I think, complementary characters as well. That fit. Now, in terms of, um, let's say, monetary value, when they were selling their first and second records and their shows, which were a success, were they like number one bestsellers or was it really just the start for them and they generated the success and then the wheel started? The, the, the LPs sold extremely well. Um, the first one, uh, yeah, I don't know what in terms of the sales figures were, but yeah, must have earned them a fair amount of money and so, the shows, but they, they worked really hard. They did, you know... They, they did lots and lots of shows in a relatively short time, yeah. uh, especially when they were on tour. And it was, how many hours a day would you say they would work together for a show? I think once they were doing the show, they would just turn up and do it in the evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in preparation for it, they, in effect, they'd spent years putting the songs together yeah. uh, and performing them. And they, they were constantly writing new material. What's interesting about Flanders is he is very much tuned into current affairs, and a lot of his humour is very contemporary, based on what was going on at the time. It's political, satirical, um, and so no one, no show was the same as another. And the irony is that the records are a, a snapshot of a show one particular evening, uh, or maybe a compilation of two or three. But every night, it was different because he was always making up new things. And you hear Swan laughing, out, you know, really out loud, because Flanders has made a joke that Swan's never heard before, because <laughs> he just thought of it on the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it's a very gentle kind of humour, actually. It's, it's subtly satirical. And Flanders has this great quote uh, talking about satire, because it was, you know, that was the week that was, and... Edinburgh, um, Beyond the Fringe, that sort of humour was going on at the time. And Flanders said, you know, satire, um, the purpose of satire, it's been said, is to strip away the veneer of comforting illusion and cosy half-truth. And our job, he says, is to put it back again. So, you know, just to sort of make people, make people feel uh, comfortable rather than uncomfortable. Uh, so they were really then the early improvisers, but the detail had been worked out before, so they knew if they were going to go off script, they knew how far they could go off script and for how long yes, they could I go off script for. Within the songs, they, they didn't normally uh, go off script because they had to know, each one had to know what the other was doing, especially once they were into a run of shows. Uh, they couldn't change it very much. But, as I say, Flanders' spoken introductions, which are often as long as the songs themselves, uh, were very varied. Yeah, he would change things. I've, I've heard, and, and it's, it's, it's very captivating when you actually listen to someone who is highly articulate, yet who speaks to everyone. Yeah. And yeah. that's, that's the, been the magic to me when I've listened, yeah. is they speak to everyone. They're not going to just one person. It's all. And that, therefore, everyone in the room, or who's ever listening, is drawn into that passion they obviously have in getting the message. And yet, like the best radio broadcaster, which Flanders was, you feel he's talking just to you when you're listening, mm-hmm. when you're listening to the record. You know, just, he's like telling, just telling you a story. Obviously, there's a live audience there. So you, 
but um, you get involved with it because he's a great storyteller. Mm-hmm. Now, now, what are their most popular songs? Okay, well, the, the most popular one is the Hippopotamus. I'll give you a little sample of that. used in an advert, uh, so a lot of people know it from that. Uh, a lovely song they wrote in response to the cuts that were being made at the time to the rail network. Doesn't sound like great material for a song, but they made a beautiful song out of it, and it's called Slow Train. I'll just give you a sample of that. number in their show was about two London bus drivers. Uh, they did write about anything and everything called a transport of delight. Some talk of a Lagonda, some like a smart engine for the body they'd lay the noon and deep. Such means of locomotion seem rather dull to us. The driver and conductor Bus. Hold very tight, please, ting ting, hold very tight, please, ting ting. And they go on about you know, what it's like to drive a bus in London, and it's very funny. Um, but things like at the start of that song, you've got some talk of a Lagonda, uh, of course, that's a play on some talk of Alexander. Um, and as a child, I heard all this stuff and I grew up with it, and things like that I didn't get because I didn't know what they were satirising, not satirising, but why it was a play on words. Um, and there's so many things that are really clever uh, that took me years to fully understand, because uh, I was, you know, I first heard these when I was like six or seven, so I, I've literally had grown up with them. Mm-hmm. It's um, Alfred Hitchcock said, um, the play on words, or puns, is the greatest form of literature. And also, um, the Shakespeare, again, had over 3,000 puns in his complete works. Right, okay. And it is, this, this play on words, however you're going to use the word, it's going to be is alike, sounds alike, etc. Yeah. You, again, your, your appreciation and uh, knowledge of the 
English language, but especially English literature, yes, yes. is essential. Yes, you've got to know what they're referring to in the joke. And how it's going to be referred to to the person receiving it. Yeah. So you can see clearly, um, I'm a hippopotamus, is you think to yourself, but he's a, just as you played it, I believe you are that character. That's right. You have been, uh, I'm listening to, I'm just, I was literally taken away thinking, You've absorbed, he's given the energy through the notes and the lyrics for you to be that character. Yeah. And it, 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 it is, I'm going to say frightening, it's just incredible. I was just, I was just looking at the, the note range that you went through. Yeah. And that was what, just probably two octaves. It wasn't even, it was just very light bass line, yeah. very light melody, and yeah. the words drive the song. Yes. But the music is a perfect match for them. Yes. Uh, that's what I think is so wonderful about their songs. It, yeah. that they, the, the marriage of the words and music is so perfect. Um, so, so we've just said, so, so as moving on then, so as we just take on further, so what type of things did they write about? They, they almost literally wrote about just about anything you could think of. Um, we've had London buses, they wrote about designer houses, fads in designer houses, they wrote about hi-fi. Uh, they wrote one about having a bath that goes like this. Oh, I find much simple pleasure when I've had a tiring day in bath, in bath, where the noise of gentle sponging seems to blend with my top A in the bath, in the bath. Um, it goes on like that. It just talks about the, the pleasure of having a bath. And uh, yeah, then the water runs cold and the towel's in the cupboard, and the cupboard is next door, and then it starts running hot again. Uh, they're, they're telling a whole story um, about having a bath there. Um, there's another one that's all about the weather. Uh, the song of the weather, January brings the snow, makes your feet and fingers glow. And uh, rather topically here, uh, the lines, um, in July the sun is hot, is it shining? No, it's not. August, cold and dank and wet, brings more rain than any yet. It feels rather uh, like what it's been here in England. Anyway, um, they wrote a song about a pillar box, which is a very sweet little song. Um, I'll demonstrate that. The traffic signs are green, they reflect a cheerful light. The standard lamps are green. Sorry, I'll start that one again. <clears throat> Traffic lights are gleaming, they reflect a cheerful light. The standard lamps are beaming, they get lit up every night. The fire alarm is thinking of some funny false alarms. The police call box is winking with a sergeant in her arms. But all the street is happy, but there's one who's standing by. A lonely little fellow who is trying not to cry. While all the street is happy, his courageous heart is and I hear him sadly singing as a tear runs down his spot. Pity the poor little pillar box, standing in the rain all day. Tired and weary, weak and shivering, waiting for the next delivery. There's a little sad little pillar box, and in the next verse he feeds some sandwiches to show he understands. Um, is, funny is, little things like that. Is there, um, is there a softness? in the way it's played. Yes, yes, it, it's gentle. Um, 
yeah, you're not sort of hammering it out on the piano. Swan could do that, but um, yeah, he tailors the accompaniment for what kind of song it is. Um, it's and it's and it's just one of the things, isn't it? They pick on a thing, yeah, and it's anything, yeah, and for the next three to five minutes, you will be absorbed exactly on everything about that particular object, yeah, and you're going to, you're, you're going to absorb the personality of that object and what it's like to be. Yes, that object. Yes. You're wrapped up in in the story. Mm -hmm. uh, I just want to play a, a really beautiful one uh, called the Armadillo. Um, so the lovely introduction. It's about a. This is about an armadillo who, on Salisbury Plain, uh, falls in love with an armpitted tank. <laughs> My theodolite and was calling it a day when I heard a voice that sang a sad refrain. Oh, my darling armadillo, how delightful it would be. Sorry. Oh, my darling armadillo, let me tell you of my love. Listen to my armadillo round and Be my fellow on my pillow underneath this weeping willow. Be my darling armadillo all the day. And it turns out that he's singing to a tank, which is very sad. <laughs> it's, it's almost like they've taken operas. Yeah. And instead of going to like a Gilbert and Sullivan epic two hour you must listen to, you're going to get the whole lot in five minutes. So I'm just, yeah. I mean, I'm just listening to you and I am, it's a privilege to actually be here as you play. But I'm just being sucked in by this warmth. It's yes, just a warm. Yeah. I think that's what theme. appealed to the audiences immediately was the, the way it draws you in, and you just feel feel yeah, sheer enjoyment. I think it is. I'm smiling. You're being told a story, and it's being done in such a lovely way. Um, it isn't. It's, it's smiling. Yeah. It's it's a case of as, as we were saying earlier, um, they set out through the medium to make someone smile. I wonder if they test marketed like this as another one. Uh, that was it. Well, like I said, they used to play, it to play it to Florence's mother and she was a kind of, you know, a sounding board for them, really. I, I would imagine. They played it to lots of other people, too. So yes. yes. Um, but I think they just instinctively knew what worked. There are very few of their songs that don't come off. It's incredible variety. One, one time they took a, a Mozart horn concerto and actually used... Mozart's music and Flanders made up words to it about how he tried to learn to play the horn and then you know, his neighbour steals the horn hates having Flanders playing next door to him uh, but you get the whole story uh, all along with this Mozart music Now did they ever write anything serious? They did uh, a couple of, uh, certainly one of the animal songs called the Ostrich is sort of gently humorous, but there's a real sting in the tail, because the, the ostrich uh, is you know, found in the desert, and the narrator tries to tell the ostrich what's going on in the world, all these terrible things are happening, and the ostrich literally is, uh, says, I don't want to know this, I'm going to bury my head. And so he does. Uh, and then at the end, 
there's this huge explosion just before the end of the song. Um, it used to terrify me as a child. Um, and the ostrich is blown to bits by a, a nuclear test because um, you know, um, he wouldn't listen to what he was being told. And, and they were both very anti-war. And, and they wrote a song called 20 Tons of TNT, which was uh, emphasising how for every person in the world there is the equivalent of 20 tons of TNT capable of blowing up everybody. And that was in the 60s. How many more times than that would apply now? But it's, it's, it's good, isn't it? It's, it's like they're not just take, they're taking relevant points. They're looking yeah. at relevant points in time, yeah. making people smile, but also understand to take it further yes. yeah. what they're saying and thinking 20 tons of TNT per person. Yeah. Mm. They're, they're giving people a lesson in a very digestible way, <coughs> you know, something to really to think about. Yeah. And, and, and it is, and, and actually also, just as we go back to, again, it's an object, appreciate the object, and, or appreciate where we are at the moment in time. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it is a lot of, sort of modern comics, in, in my opinion, okay, they go, they're very formulaic, yeah. but it's not depth. And here we have depth. Yes, there's terrific depth. I mean, there, there's one where he talks, he does a monologue about how green sleeves came to be written. And there's so much um, reference to Tudor dramatists, not, not just Shakespeare, but um, people at the time of Henry VIII, because green sleeves is supposed to be written by Henry VIII. And he weaves this whole story around that. Um, but you've got to know a lot of your history and uh, to really fully appreciate it. Uh, and know who was writing plays at the time or writing music at, uh, at the time of the Tudors. It, it assumes, it never talks down to you, it assumes you know an awful lot, and some people do and some people don't, but it, yeah, it, it's definitely not lowest common denominator. Um, Green Sleeves just happens to be one of my favourite tunes, uh -huh. uh, which um, uh, for me is the one tune I can play with my guitar behind my head, blindfolded. Impressive. <laughs> I'm going to see that sometime. In a classical guitar as well. It's <laughs> not just an ordinary small guitar, the full size. The, uh, but I didn't know I had such an innuendo behind it. Um, so how long did they perform together? It was around 10, maybe 12 years, I'm not sure exactly. Um, but eventually, towards the end of the 1960s, Donald Swan actually called a halt to it. Because he, I think he got a bit tired of being the butt of the jokes, because Flanders would often um, make you know, gentle jokes at his expense. And I think he, he just got a bit tired of that. Um, but he also wanted to be taken more seriously as a composer. Very like Sullivan, or Gilbert and Sullivan. Sullivan wanted to be known as a classical proper composer. But everyone just knew him as Sullivan, as in Gilbert and Sullivan. Mm -hmm. um, and Swan was the same. You know, he, yeah, he could do what he did with Flanders, and I think he... Uh, enjoyed it for a time, but I think he wanted to go down a more serious route, uh, particularly as a composer. Uh, with, but ironically, uh, as with Sullivan, I think, to some extent, he never became as successful, or never was as successful as he was with Flanders. But he was able to go and find his inner peace by having the opportunity after all those years to say, right, I want to have some time out. Yeah. And this is about me time now and see yeah. where I can go. That's right. 
Um, it's Definitely. fully understandable. I think Flanders would have wanted to carry on, but yeah. um, Swan decided to finish it. Um, and it was a punishing schedule they had when they were touring concerts every night in different places in the States or Australia. And in this country, they toured around a lot. I saw them in Brighton, seven or eight. Um, but yeah, they went all over the place. And in those days, it, was, it wasn't a case of getting on a plane and you arrive in the States three hours later. Well, no, particularly because Flanders had the wheelchair. Oh, he had the wheelchair, yes. And he wrote, he wrote a monologue about that, which is, which is very funny, about all the trials and tribulations of um, flying uh, as a person using a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And uh, he gets humour out of that. Um, well, no, there's, there's humour everywhere. Yeah. And I reckon, I reckon their notebooks must be a gold mine of references Apart from the material they've left, yeah. but their, their notebooks would be... Um, yes, it'd be interesting to see songs that they didn't ever make work, or they didn't finish, or uh, they never used. There it. must be some. Because the material they haven't used, and can you imagine the material they haven't used, yet it would probably be perfectly acceptable to everyone else. Yeah, yeah. And, but it's not the true representation that they wanted to project. Yeah, and I, I think they probably were very self-critical and what worked and what No. So what is their legacy today? I think particularly among people of a certain age who'd have been in their prime, let's say 50 or 60 years ago, they're very fondly remembered, um, and by some who were children at the time, as I was. Um, they're probably seen nowadays as rather quaintly old-fashioned, uh, but they're a great example of a particular tradition of gentle, witty and clever British humour of a particular period. Um, I think Armstrong and Miller do a sort of take-off of them, don't they? Mm. Um, But, yeah, I don't know how many people, say, under the age of 30, know about them or know any of the songs, apart from possibly Hippopotamus or Gnu, um, or who they were or even what they did, really. It's one of those things whereby on today's TV, it's focused to high impact, in your face. It's got to be a reaction in some direction, but a manipulated reaction. But when we go reflect back to what was on with us as growing up, we had the eclectic mix, but we had a real eclectic mix of a mix of everything. Mm. Because we didn't have the number of channels available. No. So we would have, for example, Open University. We all watched Open University. <laughs> Whether it be five o'clock in the morning, <laughs> before we went to school, yeah. <laughs> coming home from school, it would be on some or some late channel. But we, we had radios with, focused on our shows. Yeah. So it wouldn't be a three minute or five minute sound bite. It would be an hour show based on repeats of whether it be classic films or, or anything. Mm. Um, so what age, and so you were seven was the first time you, you saw them. So what age did you pick up and say, I really like this? I always liked it. Um, yeah. and I, I could see a lot of the humour in it. Um, and my parents were constantly playing the records. Um, so I just absorbed them. Uh, I always enjoyed them. and. You know, for the last 30 years or so, my brother and I have been doing a show uh, of entirely Flanders and Swan, a few other things thrown in, but uh, 
mostly Francis and Swan songs, because we just love doing them. And, and, and they and do go down very well, as I say, particularly with an older audience. Mm -hmm. I would recommend anyone who's listening to get along to a Simon Hancock <laughs> show. No, we're not doing them anymore, I'm afraid. Oh, you're not doing them anymore? <laughs> no. Well, I've, I've seen a few of them, and I can recommend to everyone <laughs> that you missed something here. Yeah. <laughs> very, very, very uh, there, there are a number of other people who still do, yeah. do them. Um, and YouTube has a number of uh, Flanders, original Flanders and Swan mm -hmm. uh, performances on, which are very... Now, I mean, so how do they compare with contemporary comics singer-songwriters today? Um, obviously, from the question, it's really, it'd be really good if you could sort of do the split from comic style yeah. and then move on to the singer-songwriter style. Yeah. And in terms of the comedy, uh, compared with most stand-up comedians now, it's very clean. Uh, they, they were never foul-mouthed, they never used four-letter words. The worst word they used was bloody in the song of the weather. Um, and they did a song which parodied permissiveness, uh, one they called Peep-Ho-Bellied Bum Draws. It was a sort of parody of Kenneth Tynan, that sort of thing at, at the time. Um, but they, they did do things that were slightly risque and things that nowadays would not be, almost not be acceptable. There's one where they, um, they do a song about going to the island of Tonga where, uh, where the word for no is holimakiti lokachichichi and uh, Flanders says he's always wanted to go there because the, um, the young ladies of, of Tonga will gladly make a date with him, and by the time they've said Holimakiti Luka Chi Chi Chi, it's usually too late. <laughs> the implication being, uh, yes, yeah, so uh, that doesn't, you know, wouldn't go down very well in the days of um, Me Too. And in terms of people now who are doing what they did, I think Bill Bailey is another one. Uh, he combines the sort of cleverness, the wittiness with the musical skill which he undoubtedly has. Um, yeah, I think he, he comes closest to, to their style, I guess. But no one quite does what they did, uh, maybe because it, it was unique. Um, anyone doing it has to be doing a tribute act, which is what we did. Um, mm -hmm. And would you say the, the satirists who followed whether it's like from the, the Goon Show through to, I was just thinking from the Goon Show through to Monty Python, mm. that they would have used elements of them, do you think? I don't, I mean, the Goon Show came before, oh, before? Flanders one, And I think, you no, know, Monty Python would have seen themselves as very cutting edge mm -hmm. uh, and a very different kind of humour. But yeah, they, as yeah, intelli all intelligent people, would have appreciated Flanders as one, but they wouldn't have incorporated it. Yes, I, that's right. I, mean, I, I don't mean being inspired by, not incorporated, inspired. So, with, with any of the sort of the. the um, I suppose that some of the songs have a sort of wacky um, quirkiness, mm -hmm. which Monty Python would have yes. built on. Yeah, yes, it's a sort of off-the-wall ideas. 
and, and it's that off the wallness with a well-constructed... So nowadays they'll say it's a Type 5. You've got a Type 5 or a Type 10, you get to 15, but it's the, it's the well-crafted five minutes. Yeah. And the detail of the farm, the well-crafted five minutes. Let's say that Bill Bailey has definitely got... Um, and again, there's another chap out there, Tim Minson. Tim Minchin, yeah. Minchin. yeah. And, um, you know, yes, again... he's very similar in some ways, yeah. In, in modern comedy, we, we see a lot of, let's say, shouting, ranting, yeah. and raging. Um, and here, we're seeing exaggerated and absurd. And we're looking at an object, and it's the absurdity yeah. of an object. Yeah. And then they're going to take the absurdity, and then they're going to exaggerate it. Yes, but it, never in a sort of ranty, shouty way. That, that certainly no, wasn't Flanders one style at it, all. It's not the style. And again, you can, you can, I can sort of see it's coming back full circle to just being articulate and nice. Yeah. Um, with a lot of the comedy that we have, if you have someone who is just speaks politely and speaks nicely, there's a chap called Earl Oaking. And I, we were lucky to have Earl Oaking here. My point is, it's just the softness. Mm of the use of the descriptive word and you don't have to have many of them you know to, to draw you in mm. now um simon thank you very much but i do have one one more question mm. so in order to actually play their music yeah is it something that you could it will take a few years to do or is it something that you can say right i'm going to how do, you, how do you get into being able to play their music? I mean, there are a lot of pianists out there who are extremely talented who can sight-read things very easily. And, uh, yeah, a lot of very good pianists would just be able to sit down and, and play most of the songs. Um, for me, I've had to spend you know, a long time learning them. Uh, and whenever I do a performance, I've had to sort of brush them up. Um, and if you play them exactly as they're notated... Uh, they can be quite hard. Um, Swan always um, improvised them, so he never wrote them down until he was asked to write a book, or until he was asked uh, to write them down for publication. But for many years, they were just in his head. Um, and he, he was the sort of talent that could just play more or less anything just in his head and just came out and sounded perfect every time. Um, whereas, yeah, for me, it's, it, it takes some work. But as a musician, it's worth it. Is it worth oh, it? Oh, undoubtedly worth it. So I, I love the songs so much. They're fun to play. But also, when you're actually playing um, the music, do you have to have a certain relaxed mode when you're playing inside your head to be... Yeah, you're, when you're singing and playing, um, that sort of takes an extra level of concentration, I suppose, but the more you know a song, the more you can relax into it. And the, the pleasure of doing it with my older brother was that we thought exactly alike of how the song should go. So if I just sort of slowed something down slightly, he was with me because we, you know, we grew up together with these songs. So they were very much in our psyche that so we could play them uh, and he would, all, he would follow me with whatever I was doing with the accompaniment. Uh, so it's very easy 
to, to perform with. Do you find that, let's say, if you go and see other people who actually play their music, do you actually just love and appreciate the music, or do you think to yourself, oh, I'm listening to the notes here? I can't, I can't avoid thinking, oh, we do it that a bit differently, or <laughs> yeah, that's not how we play it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's, there's always that element to it. Um, there, there are some songs that I have actually written down through, from listening to them, which aren't published. So se several that I've notated just through listening to them lots of times. Um, and probably one or two of them other people just don't play because they're not published. And that's quite fun to do. Brilliant. No, Simon, thank you very much for your time today. And we will put some... Um, do you have any links as well? which we can use to, as reference in the podcast um, for other people to follow up on. I could certainly send you some YouTube links of Florence and Swan performing. Yeah. Brilliant, that would be, yeah. be excellent. I'm sure this listeners appreciate it. Now Simon, thank you very much and thank you for your time. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. This has been a podcast recording, a whole lot of comedy.